Alan Shipnuck, senior writer at Sports Illustrated. We are quite lucky to have with us today Jim Bones Mackay, longtime wingman to Phil Mickelson. Um, certainly we're going to talk about your boss at great length here, Bones, but um, we have to start with George Spieth, the guy that everyone's buzzing about. Uh, what is your take on, on this guy? Uh, I think he's a tremendous young man um, on a personal level. I just think he's a wonderful kid. Uh, I tell people he's the kind of guy that you want to marry your younger sister. And uh, um, he's uh, just a phenomenal player. I think he's, uh, he's, he's going to have an amazing career. He's going to give Rory a real run for his money, and I just think he's, really tr- he's truly gifted when it comes to the, uh, the psychological and mental part of the game. You know, the Rory's needed a rivalry, clearly. You know, everybody wanted to be Rick, Ricky Fowler, but he hasn't, hasn't quite come through with the victories. I, I think that that speed that's an interesting contrast because you know rory's got the the world-class long game he can just overwhelm a golf course and and jordan plays a totally different style but is equally effective um you know obviously rory has an advantage four to one right now in major championships but from this moment forward who do you think will win more i think it's going to be a blast to see i mean you described it perfectly i mean rory can overpower a course he can certainly win majors when he's just playing okay and, and 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 Jordan probably can too, but Jordan's to me more of an old school type player. He's uh, he hits a lot of shots, high, low, you know, cuts, draws the whole nine yards. He just reminds me. I think he's a throwback to like the '70s and '80s a little bit in terms of how he plays, and he's just uh, he's an absolute assassin between the years. I was trying to think of the right parallel. I, you know, I'm thinking maybe he's he's the Tom Watson of this era, just a guy who's mentally tough, who just gets it done and of course fabulous on the greens do you, what do you think of that am i off base or no i think that's fair i mean you're right i mean he's he's mentally as tough as it gets his golf iq is through the roof and he's arguably the best putter in the game and when you put those two things together it's just scary what he can do i mean he's you know he's playing as we speak in a tournament it's his fourth in a row and he's out there shooting seven under him he's just he's special and uh, and i think rory's too and i but i just think they're two different types of players, and I think it's going to be uh, fantastic to watch as, as golf goes forward. I mean, golf is in a really good spot with these two guys, you know, being as young as they are. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, you know, Saturday night at the Masters, you had dinner with Spieth's caddy, Michael Greller, and uh, is that awkward at all since you're trying to crush his dreams the next day? <laughs> Not at all. We'd actually, we'd also had dinner the week before in Houston where both of our guys played, and uh, we're good friends, and uh you know, my wife and I are close with he and his wife, and he's a super, super guy. And 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 the story, his story of how he came to be where he's at now, I think is just fantastic. And and I've I've got a lot of respect for people that that teach for a living or taught for a living as he did, and his wife also. And uh, no, it, it, you know, I wanted Phil to win the tournament, obviously, last week at Augusta, uh, very badly. Just you know, even with him having won it three other times, but. Uh, you know, if you're going to finish a second or not win, you know, losing to a guy like Jordan is great because uh, you just wish for nothing but the best for both of those guys. What, what kind of advice did you give Greller? Well, I, we had, you know, at that point, you know, I think a lot of what those guys are dealing with is just the stress of what's going on. It's not easy to, to lead wire to wire, I don't believe, in a tournament that big. And, you know, you go to sleep every night with the lead, and, and, and in a sense, when you go out there on Sunday with a three- or four-shot lead or whatever it was, you're supposed to win. So, in a, you know, so you, you can't help but think, oh, my gosh, I mean, you know, 
the only thing that can kind of happen here is if it goes the wrong way. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't typically get nervous or anxious as a caddy, but about the only time I ever have was at a tournament when Phil had a seven-shot lead going into the last round because you're thinking, well, we're supposed to win. But uh, at that point on Sunday, you know, Jordan played so well. We were just out, you know, we had a couple of beers and had, had something nice to eat, and it was about just kind of, you know, winding down a little bit and just talking about something other than the golf. He, he obviously had a lot on his plate, and they handled it beautifully. Yeah, I mean, I know you're, you're a fan at heart. Just what does it feel like to be between the ropes at the Masters on Sunday when, when your guy is in contention? It's amazing. Phil and I talk about it a lot, and you just wish that everybody could – experience that and 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 certainly be on the property that loves the game of golf and the thing that's so cool about it to me is the time of year as you know alan you know you go there and it's it cools down in the evenings and it's like it's almost dinner time you know and you're out there on the back nine and 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 you typically get those those cloudless days and it's just beautiful and one of my favorite things is when you're on 12 green uh, which phil has done a couple of times and made big birdies there on sunday and you make the putt and you can actually hear the ball rattle in the hole before the sound of the patrons gets to you from 170 yards away, you know, because you're out there on your own on, on 12 green. It's like being on an island a little bit, and it's, it's a really cool thing. Yeah, I always when I, when I watch guys out there on that green and, and 13T, it seems like almost the, the loneliest spot in golf in a good way. I mean, there's so, there's so much hubbub around the Masters, and the crowds are so big and all that, but when, when you step into that corner of the property, it must can you just kind of exhale and and soak it all in a little bit you really can in fact i think last week was my 25th masters it was the first time uh we've ever been back there on 13t and there was a guy playing augusta country club looking through the through the fence <laughs> and the security guard back there was having none of that so you know everybody wanted a good look at what was going on well you remember there was that year when someone from augusta country club which is next door to augusta national hit some big slice and it's it's splatted on the green at 12 i was i think tiger might have been putting i mean someone wow. actually hit one hit one onto the property it that was uh that was that was bizarre but yeah i i, I don't blame the guy I would, I would like to hide in those shrubs myself Heck um, yeah <laughs> you know, when you talk about phil at augusta i mean he, he played great his four round total of 274 has been bettered only five times in tournament history once by him um, I mean, how frustrating is it to be out there making birdies like crazy but never be able to cut into Jordan's lead? Um, certainly it was a little bit frustrating. I think more than anything else, you're, 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 you're happy that, you know, that the, the, you know, Phil's obviously playing the quality of golf that he did. And, and uh, you, you know, to shoot the scores that he was, he was making a lots of three- and five-footers for par. and just You know, he was playing really tough. And, uh, and again, you know, with Jordan out in front, you know, you, you wish nothing but the best for him as much as you want to kind of track him down. But uh, I think it would have been much more frustrating if Phil didn't have a Masters win. But the fact that he's got three certainly made it, you know, a little bit uh, – it was a little easier pill to swallow. But, again, I mean, it, it just Jordan's a real tough customer, as you guys know. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, it was funny. When, when Phil was standing over that bunker shot on 15 on Sunday – I just had a weird feeling he was going to jar it. I mean, how how often do you get that that premonition with him? Yeah, it's funny. Well, sometimes he'll call them a little bit, especially on long putts. He'll tell you, "I'm getting that funny feeling here," and just between <laughs> he and I. But but you're right. That I kind of thought the same thing a little bit too. I mean, it was it was if he was going to do something, you know, he needed to do something big at that point to kind of just keep in touch with what Jordan had going on and. And Jordan still had a couple of touchy shots to hit, so uh, it was certainly very timely. And just there's nothing better than just you know seeing that ball you know 
hit the flag and go go down, and, and then just the roar from the crowd is uh, it's just it's just special. You wish you could kind of bottle that and and, and save it for a time later in life. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Can you pick out the single greatest shot he's you've ever seen him hit? Um, I can certainly pick out three or four. Let's hear uh, him. Well, wow. Well, when he won his first Masters in '04, uh, I would have to say that the eight iron he hit into 18 with everything on the line. You know, at that point tied with Ernie Els, who you know was on a mat had shot I think 67 that day and was just sitting there on the putting green waiting for us licking his chops. I think that. Phil, Phil didn't exactly hit that shot. Guys traditionally hit in that pin that you know where you hit it 25 or 30 feet right of the hole and made the putt that O'Meara did in '98. Phil hit it right at the flag and ultimately made the putt from behind the hole. So that was huge. Um, driving it in the fairway at Baltusrol when we had to come back on Monday for his second right. major. Uh, you know he ultimately made birdie on 18 to win that tournament by one. That was an inc- probably the greatest drive I've ever seen him hit because it was windy and cool. And just as much pressure at that point as, he, as he'd ever, ever played under in his life. Uh, virtually every shot he hit when he won the British Open in 2013. <laughs> I mean, he just—it was the greatest round I've ever seen him play. And of course, the uh, the six iron out of the pine straw at the 2010 Masters. I would have to say. Not, not the the shot at Pebble Beach out of the bunker where he hit it kind of backwards over his head. <laughs> that doesn't rate. No, that that rates. But you know, I've been lucky enough to be with Phil for you know twenty plus years, and to be honest with you, he's just. We could sit here for a couple of hours and talk about all the, all the things he's done like that. I mean, that certainly rates. But uh, it, I, you know, I think it was you know in the tournament where we, where we weren't doing particularly well, and it was he was having fun and. Uh, there was a guy there with a camera. I remember there was a local film crew there, a news news team, and I I always wondered if they got that shot on video. But uh, yeah, it was it was incredible. I mean, just, just set the scene. He's kind of on the upslope of a bunker. This is number four, right? Yeah, he hit it through the green. We hit we had some trouble off the tee, and he just had to kind of hack something up by the green, and it re- it rolled through. I think the back bunker on behind four green, and the ball was literally sitting like it would when he does that shot and hits it backwards over his head. And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, here we go. <laughs> and uh, and I thought to myself, it was just kind of typical Phil. You wonder, is he going to be able to pull us off, you know, with everybody watching and in the fact that if it goes wrong, it's going to go horribly wrong. <laughs> um, but he pulled it off brilliantly. He hit it backwards over his head. It landed relatively near the hole. I think it went, went you know, 12 or 15 feet away. And, it, you know, in a, in a thousand attempts, he probably couldn't have hit one close to the hole. It was It was a great shot. <laughs> That's tremendous. Um, all right, well, with the Masters in, in the books, you know, we have to start looking ahead to the U.S. Open, which is obviously um, probably the most important term of the year for Phil. As, as you're pointing towards Chambers Bay, how would you assess the state of his game now? Well, good. I mean, it's been trending upwards for several weeks now. It's been, you know, since we played the, the couple of tournaments in Florida, it's been getting better and better. And then, you know, of course, he played the good golf at Augusta, so he's – I think he's, you know, he, as always, very motivated to play. He's in great shape physically, and, and, and Augusta's only going to give him, you know, that much more confidence. So, um, you know, we're playing in some great tournaments coming up. I think everyone's really excited about the, the new format at the match play where it takes a lot of the kind of luck slash bad luck out of the equation. And uh, and just as you say, you know, you want to be peaking when you get to Chambers Bay. I mean, I think the big thing, obviously, about Chambers Bay is the unknown. I've literally only spoken to three or four people that have ever played it. So uh, it seems like uh, a lot of guys don't know much about it, and there's going to be a lot of you know, scouting trips involved in the, in the weeks prior. 
that was exactly what I wanted to ask you. I mean, you guys traditionally take a, a scouting trip to the, the major championship venues and you know spend a couple of long days charting the course. Just tell me about the, the process you go through. Yeah, you know, you, you get there and Phil's Phil's one of those guys that'll, as he did at Marion a couple of years ago, walk into the pro shop and ask the head pro to play with him and or you know seek advice from guys there locally as to you know tendencies of the course may have or just you know little hid, hidden gems that people there know about the track and you know it's a, just a question there of getting there you know figuring out of course you know what the course looks like what you're going to hit off tees and what the prevailing wind is and you know with that course we we keep on hearing it's going to be a British Open in the United States which is music to fill the ears because he's really taken to that style of golf and um, you know just learning as much as you possibly can. Uh, you know, again, so so few people seem to know much about that course. The irony is that the person that probably knows the most about that course is caddying for Jordan Spieth because that's where Michael Greller's from. So we're gonna we're gonna be uh, you know picking his brain a lot too. Well, did he get married there? I think I think he had his reception at the Chambers Bay um, like clubhouse. It wouldn't surprise me. I know that, that for us caddies who have you know trouble finding places to stay, you know, he, he found his house by the course in about five minutes. So he's, <laughs> he's obviously very connected in that area. I, I might have to hit him up. Actually, the the media hotel is about forty miles away. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, the man that week for sure. <laughs> um, you know, talk, talking about the Open, you know, obviously. Phil's famously had six runner-up finishes. Uh, for you personally, which, which one is the most painful? Uh, that's a good question. I, I would I would I would say it's probably a tie between uh, Shinnecock '04 and um, and uh, Pinehurst '99, uh, just because he played so amazingly well in both of them. And you know, I've been asked that question before, and people say, "Well, my gosh, why isn't it Wingfoot?" And it's not even close to being Wingfoot because. He never really had it at all that entire week, and we were just hanging on, hanging on, and obviously it didn't work out in the end. But at uh, at Shinnecock, he played incredibly well. I think he might have birdied 14, 15, and 16 on Sunday, something like that. And then he got the rock behind his ball in the bunker on 17, and, and, and you know that's where it all got away from him. And then at Pinehurst, I mean, it was just such a surreal kind of evening you know you're out there in the mist it was like almost like being on a movie set and of course at this point he hadn't won a major and Amy was incredibly pregnant and he just played so incredibly well and he got beat obviously by a guy that you know made the greatest par putt I've ever seen on 16 there that day the 70th hole you know birdied 17 and makes a putt on you on 18 and it was it was a really tough pill to swallow well I mean you told me once that of all the the caddy moments in your career, if you could have one over, it's the 71st hole. Phil and, and, and Payne are tied. They, they both hit it in there pretty close on that, that par three, and you know Phil has, has a somewhat short birdie putt. And Just tell me about that moment and, and why it still haunts you. Well, yeah, you know, Payne had the honor and hit a six iron to like five feet, and then Phil hit a seven iron to, I don't know, 10 or 12 feet, and uh, he, he we got down there, and, and Phil brought me in for the read, and I and, uh, we we both thought it was pretty straight, and and he hit the putt. And you know, I've only seen it once or twice on video since. But the, obviously, the ball definitively broke to the right and didn't go in. And Payne makes the birdie putt to go one ahead, which was the difference in the tournament. And yeah, there's definitely not a day that goes by that I don't think about that. And if I had to do over in my career, it would be that read for sure. I asked Phil. He said he pulled it. Did he really? Yeah, that's funny. Well, there you go. I've never asked him, so you know it's just not something you really talk about with your player there in the moment. And uh, if he said that to you, I didn't know that, so that's that's interesting. 
Maybe he's just trying to release you from your anger. Maybe so. He's, yeah, he's he's nice like that. So yeah. <laughs> I mean, golf fans have this debate. Some degree, writers do. You know, how much difference can a caddy make? What is your take on that? Um. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think a caddy can help, and I'm not talking about myself. I mean, I, I do my thing with Phil, but part of also what you do as a caddy is you observe. And uh, you know, I, I I was I was with a a, a player in the not, in the recent past who said something along the lines about not being so sure about how much caddies can help. And my response to him was, well, you know, we played the first two rounds with Tiger at the 08 U.S. Open at, at Torrey Pines, which obviously he famously went along to to win. And and I told him I know for a fact, you know, just watching he and Steve Williams work together that day, that Steve Williams saved him two, three, four shots just in the two two rounds we played with him. Um, you know, I'm certainly not saying that about myself, but uh, I do think a caddy can can certainly help help you know a definitive amount, and and certainly uh, coming down the stretch in majors when everything's on the line and these players are just under immense pressure. Yeah. No. I, I I tend to agree. I just wanted to kind of poke at you a little bone. I mean, but, if you well, go back, well if you go, if you go back to when Hunter Mahan, I think, won his first tournament at, at, in Hartford, you know, several years ago now, and, and and they got it on TV. The conversation between he and John Wood, where 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 I think they were either in the playoff or on the seventy-second hole, and Hunter, I think, had to make a birdie. And uh, and Hunter was, you know, obviously very uncomfortable, very n- nervous, and got out of his routine. And Johnny Wood literally said, "Stop, stop right now, stop what you're doing, give me the club, get out of there, back off, and go through your routine again." And, and it was it was like a you know a real whoa moment as as we were watching it on TV. And, and Hunter did did what John suggested, kind of took a breath and went back in there and started again and hit a nine iron to two feet and won the tournament. And, and, and again, you know. It may be just one shot over 72 holes, but oftentimes that shot's enough to make a big difference. I mean, Phil Phil is kind of famously an information junkie, and he wants to pontificate on any number of subjects, um, including golf. What are some of the uh, the more intense conversations that you and he have had over a particular shot? Well, I'd say certainly that one in the pine straw on 13 Augusta was one of the most um, you know, because again, so much was on the line. I mean, the thing about Phil is that he's typically, with the exception of the 2013 British Open, he's a big scoreboard watcher. So, uh, other than the fact that we were up in that pine straw in the 2013 Masters, you know, tr- you know, excuse me, 2010 Masters, trying to win, it, it, as it happened, KJ Choi missed a putt ahead of us for a five that put Phil, I think, in the lead for the first time that whole week. Yeah. So part of the the, the the you know tension in that conversation was me not only telling him you know my concerns about the shot he was playing but also saying hey you know you're leading here now for the first time this whole week you've been chasing for four days now you're leading does that change what you want to do so you know it's it's just all part of the whole big picture that's going on out there I mean you, you get one veto a year <laughs> correct well I t- technically I do. But I've tried, you know, there's been some controversy of late about that because I've tried to use them overseas, and he's trying to tell me it's domestic only. So <laughs> we've had some great conversations. But, yes, sir, technically I get one veto a year. I mean, do you, do you have the, the Spaldings to, to to pull that out on the final round of the Masters? Would would you have, like, flat-out vetoed it if you just believed you were playing the wrong shot? Um, 
I'm not going to say no. I mean, there's certainly a chance. Obviously, you've got to weigh what's going on with your player and what you think his reaction is going to be. I mean, I feel like I've done a good job with my vetoes over the year, but Phil was horrified at the veto I used last year at the Scottish Open, and it was on a hole we ended up making bogey on anyway, so he was doubly horrified. So, um, <laughs> well, walk me through that, because I was going to ask you for some, some veto. Um, some we were, veto we were playing the Scottish Open and uh, at uh, – it was at Royal Aberdeen, and he was playing really well on Sunday. And there, there was, uh, we were trying to carry this ditch off the tee, and I didn't think we could carry the ditch. But as Phil quite rightly pointed out, there was no water in the ditch to begin with. So even if the ball went in there, Phil felt like he could have probably made par in the hole anyway. So I talked him into a different club. He hit that club in the rough and made a bogey. He's the only bogey of the round. So he, he roughed me up a little bit about that that particular choice of veto, which he certainly has a case, but. Some of the other, you know, my first veto ever was in New Orleans where he wanted to skip a ball across the water on the ninth hole there from the right rough, and I wasn't real fond of that one. So what do you, what do you say? How do you word it when, when it's time to, to play that card? Uh, I would say something like, I am officially submitting my veto to the committee or something like that. <laughs> I obviously would try to make him laugh. And, you, got, you know, depending on the situation, I think in New Orleans that particular time, you know, he was probably in, you know, 15th or 20th at the time. But, yeah, you, you know, you raise your hand and you, and you, and you, you put it out there. One year, your, uh, your uh, co-worker, Jack McCallum, witnessed me uh, trying to uh, use a veto at the British Open, at the 2002 British Open there in Muirfield. And, and uh, we had a great conversation about that that we won't put on the air. <laughs> so it's can, – can Phil filibuster on the veto or it's just – it's – it's automatic. You you say veto and that's it. Well, that's a good question. Um, I thought you know apparently Phil had, can filibuster the the veto because he has, and he's <laughs> told me to take a hike a couple of times. But so I guess technically he he's the committee when it comes to the veto. So I, I have to deal with that too. And when, when it happens, oh man, that's funny. Um, not not talking about you guys in particular, but you know just. The, the the patter between player and caddy is always fascinating, and, and fans and TV audiences get just a, a small glimpse of it once in a while. But what what is the most outrageous thing you've ever heard a player say to a caddy, and vice versa? Now, you don't have to say you don't have to name names, but we'd prefer that you do. No, no. Um, oh my goodness gracious! Um, you know, I will say that typically, if a player and a caddy are having a problem, they're going to kind of you know go off to the side and, and, you know, kind of have their problem away from everybody. So, you know, typically t- typically it's, you know, you, you're not privy to that kind of stuff, which is good because you wouldn't want to be privy anyway. But, you know, I mean, there's, there's usually some back and forth. I did hear a good story recently about a player and caddy who are really good friends, and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the player said to the caddy, uh, You've you've got to be about the worst caddy out here. And the caddy said back to the player, he said, "You might be the worst short iron player in the history of the game," which I just thought was awesome to say that to a guy who's out there on the tour, who's won some tournaments and things along those lines. So I mean, some of those back and forth I think are, are pretty great. And they they survived that. They're still together. Oh yeah, they're the best of friends. I mean, you know, you, you know, it's you know, it's just a lot of it's just in fun, especially when you get those relationships when the caddy feels you know very. You know, secure in his position with the player. Yeah, I mean, you came up in the early '90s before the really big money arrived on tour. And 
what are some of the ways that you and the other caddies cut costs while traveling? Oh my gosh. I can remember sleeping four I remember four guys in a room one year in Atlanta. Um <laughs> you know, sleeping on the floor and stuff like that and you know, going over to the British Open. Uh Joe Lacava and I, who was caddying for Fred Couples at the time, um, in nineteen ninety two at Muirfield when Fred was arguably the best player in the world, we went over to to Muirfield's, you know, and, and we had nothing. And we were literally walking around downtown, whatever that town is there, down across the way, yeah. asking people if they would move out of their places so we could stay in their apartments or houses or whatever. Because, you know, to this day, you know, these tournaments, the USGA or the PGA, they go to these, these towns and they they take over these hotels and they and the players all stay in it. But rarely do they do anything for the caddies. So it can put you in a real pickle. So, you know, especially back in the day when the purses were so small. I mean, I think that particular week at the British Open in 92, we ended up with seven or eight guys in a tiny apartment. I remember the guys were sleeping in the kitchen and, and things <laughs> along those lines. So it, it can be tough. Well, that was, that was before the Internet, so there was no Airbnb. I mean, it, it was really word of mouth a lot in a lot of these places. Absolutely. I mean, you couldn't communicate with each other and – it was just a mess, and it's it's better now. But uh, but back, yeah, as you say, back in the day, there's a great story about a caddy back in the day who, in the same spot we were, who literally went to a guy who had a farm, and he had a little metal caravan out on the property, and he asked the guy if he could stay in the metal caravan. And the guy goes, "Yeah, well, sure." And none of us, could, there was no electricity in there. None of us could figure out how he could wake up in the morning and ultimately make his early tea time. And he went down to the local. Uh, store and bought some bird seed and put it on the roof of the caravan and in the morning the birds would land on the roof of the caravan peck the roof and it would wake him up and he would go to work that's maybe the best story i've ever heard about anything that's incredible yeah who was the caddy oh his name was dirty dan and that's all i'm going to say he was an awesome guy dirty dan and he's he's he was he was the greatest one of the greatest player caddy stories you 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 would ever hear involved dirty dan and unfortunately, you can't tell it because it's like a show-and-tell story. Oh, but uh, he's he's a legend in terms of the great caddy stories. All right, well, we'll save that for the next time I bump into you out on the tour. Um, Dirty Dan's not a bad nickname. That, that's a good start. What are your other favorite caddy nicknames? Uh, Dusty Trails. Um, uh, I thought, you know, I thought... Uh, bad luck Chuck was a tough nickname to have for a guy that was caddied for a living, you know, when you're trying to get work. I always felt bad for that guy. Um, you know, there was a guy, I, I, I want to be, I don't want to be politically incorrect here, but there was a guy that started caddying on the tour. I guess it was back in the nineties and he kind of came out of nowhere and he wore a hooded sweatshirt and Ray-Ban sunglasses. And that was great. The only problem was at the time when they were looking for the Unabomber and they had that, like, most wanted poster, he looked exactly <laughs> like the sketch on that most wanted poster. So, of course, you might imagine what his nickname was. But there's, there's been some really good ones. <laughs> That's great. I mean, it's certainly um, a colorful cast of characters. But, I mean, the guys who last obviously have a you know really strong dedication to the craft. And, of course, that brings us to the famous earthquake story in Las Vegas. Um, I've, I've heard different versions of this, but... I want to hear it straight from you. You're you're in Las Vegas. You're on the 15th floor of a hotel. There's yeah. an earthquake. What is the first thing you do? Well, it was just a deal where Phil was staying, you know, one of those huge hotels like I was, and he didn't want to w walk through the lobby with his clubs. So he said, hey, will you take the clubs at night? 
which doesn't normally happen, but just did that particular week. So I had the clubs just standing up, you know, in the room. I was staying with uh, Johnny Wood, uh, Hunter Mahan's caddy, and we were on the 15th floor of the Golden Nugget, and this huge, well, I felt like a huge earthquake hit, and the the, uh, the hotel was swaying back and forth, and Woody's from Sacramento, so this was nothing to him, but I was losing it. I mean, I'm from Athens, Georgia at the time. And so I ran across the room. For whatever reason, it was the first thing that occurred to me was Phil's, you know, three was snapping when it fell against the, the desk. So I went over there and I laid the clubs down on the ground and I looked at Woody and I said, what do we do now? And so he, he, he always thought that was funny. And he's like, we go back to bed. That's what we do. And, uh, you know, Phil's clubs were safe and sound. I was at that tournament. I remember looking out the window and there was like waves in the hotel pool. It was, uh, it was, that was a, I mean, I'm a California guy. It was, it was not a bad earthquake. We'll, we'll forgive you that one. Both. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, Greller's got a lot of attention for being a school teacher less than three years ago. You were a college golfer working at a country club, and you sort of randomly met Larry Mize, and, and that was your big break that got you out on tour. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who are thinking, man, it'd be really cool to be a tour caddy. What advice would you give those guys who, who kind of want to chase that dream? Well, you know, it's funny when I when all the stuff came out about Michael in the last week, I thought, you know, you know that this has happened in the past, and you know, and maybe sometimes you you know, days or weeks down the road, you run into the guys in the parking lot events that are thinking, well, gosh, I'd like to do the same thing, and and uh, you know, it's it's kind of a risky proposition because uh, it, you know you could end up spending a lot of money kind of chasing that dream, and so I think without question. You know, ever since Tiger came out on the tour in, in, in 96, things have changed. I think, you know, back when I started in 1990, you could maybe, you know, go to a tournament, meet a player in the parking lot, hang around for a few weeks and get some work. But that's just not the case anymore because when the purses went through the roof, when Tiger came around and guys started making more money, there ended up being way more caddies than jobs. And so, you know, because experience is so important and because knowing the courses is one of the most important things what I suggest guys do is if, if you really want to chase that dream, you have to go to the web.com tour and and just kind of pay your dues. And in other words, go down there, learn how to caddy, meet guys, and ultimately, you know, 20, 25 guys each year come up to the PGA Tour. And it's also, you know, a great place to go and figure out who can really play and who can't. And if you latch on to one of those guys, you know, you may end up spending – years and years on the, on the PGA Tour, and it's happened, a, you know, a lot here in the last five or ten years. So I think in a sense you, you want to go to AAA to, before you can ultimately, you know, get out there on the PGA Tour just because it's so tough now. Yeah, yeah, well said. Um, so Phil is 45. He doesn't seem like, like the kind of guy who's going to grind it out on the senior tour. Um, what's your next move going to be, Bones? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that Phil's kept me around as long as he has, and, and uh, you know I really enjoy caddying and, and just being out there between the ropes. But uh, you know, I'm not sure at this point. I mean, I know I, I want to keep on caddying for Phil, um, and uh, and you know when when the time comes for me to think about doing something else, then I will. I mean, given your close friendship with Phil and and just the caliber of player he is, it'd be hard to caddy for anybody else, right? It would be strange. Yes, I mean. I'll be the first to admit I'm spoiled rotten. I've worked for a guy that, for a long time, that 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 is very nice to me on the course and and uh, and has has been a phenomenal player, one of the greatest of all time, I think. You know, in terms of the top 10, 15, 20 players, and and so I'm spoiled. So, you know, m- 
maybe that would make the transition to working for somebody else tougher. I don't know, but uh, I'll, I'll worry about that when the time comes. I've heard some buzz that you might be, you might want a TV job. Is that uh, true? No, I mean, I, I, I've, some people have said some nice things to me in the past about, you know, thinking I might be good at that, but uh, I, I like caddying too much right now. Yeah. All right. Well, here's the last question. You've traveled the world. You've met four U.S. presidents plus Nelson Mandela. You helped get your guy into the Hall of Fame. Uh, how, how would you sum up this kind of crazy journey of yours? Wow. Um, just the luckiest guy. I'm just incredibly fortunate. I, I, I got a couple of really lucky breaks. I got a chance to do something that I love. I truly love caddying and traveling around, you know, the United States and parts of the world and seeing these great places, play these great courses. I'm, I'm just a very, very lucky guy, and I'm just extremely grateful for the opportunity that I had. Well, we are extremely grateful you took time out of your schedule to, to talk a little golf with, with the SI podcast audience. So, Bones, thanks for, uh, thanks for your insight, and uh, we'll be watching you on TV every Sunday between now and eternity. So uh, it was a pleasure, and uh, maybe we'll do it again after you guys com- complete the Grand Slam at Chambers Bay. That sounds great, Alan. I appreciate you guys having me on. All right, take care. Thank you. You too.